You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. We're working our way through the the book of Acts. We'll take a pause after today and do some Christmas stuff uh, and do something at the new year as well, probably, uh, and then we'll jump back in. Um, But today we're in chapter 9, and we use a tagline around here. It's not original with us. We just heard it somewhere else, but uh, it's the tagline, grace changes everything. And uh, that is a phrase that we can get flippant with if we're not careful, but it really is true. And I remember as a kid, the first time I saw grace at work in someone else's life and really understood it. Now, my mom was a believer, but I, I wouldn't have understood what she was like before a believer and before being a believer. So growing up, the first time I really remember seeing grace really changing a person was when I was in early high school. And uh, there was a kid I was friends with in junior high. Uh, and this kid was really, really sharp. He was super smart. He was very funny. He was great with people. Uh, he just had a lot of gifts, and he knew it. He was a very arrogant kid. He was a very cocky kid. And so we got along because we were very similar. And uh, it may surprise you, but I haven't always been as lovable as I am today. And uh, so at any rate, uh, this kid, he, we were friends, he moved. And two years later, he came back to visit us at spring break. And I was like, is this like invasion of the body snatcher? What happened to this guy? He came back and he was humble and he wasn't talking about himself. He was primarily asking me questions, get, taking an interest in someone else. I'd perceived him to be a very self-focused individual, but he was focused on others. And he told me that what happened was since he moved, he met Jesus Christ. And, and the, the change in the direction of his life as a young person and his heart and the way he acted towards others um, was so amazing. I was like, this, this grace is incredible. I was actually a Christian at the time, but probably not really following the Lord very closely, but I was so provoked by grace changing him into a different person that it caused me to pursue the Lord with, with a new vigor in my own life. And today's passage is probably the most powerful passage, certainly in the book of Acts, if not the Bible, about how grace changes everything and how grace reorients the life of an individual and how grace can totally reverse the course of someone's life. And it's the conversion of Saul, uh, who we know later in the Bible as Paul. So we're going to read this in sections, read a little talk a little, read a little, talk a little. We'll have some application and prayer at the end. So listen to God's word here of powerful saving grace. Verses 1 through 9 is where I'll start. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him heard speechless, uh, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, this is the second time we've encountered Saul in the book of Acts. The first time was the very beginning of chapter 8. And what was happening at the beginning of chapter 8 is that Saul, um, the Pharisee, a Jewish leader, he oversees the execution of Stephen. Stephen is the first recorded Christian martyr in the book of Acts. And Saul is overseeing his death. And now we see that he's up to the same stuff. Verse 1, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. I get breathing threats. That would be like making threats. But breathing murder is a strong statement of how evil this guy is. He is it just out of his breath, his very being is the heart of hatred towards Christians desiring to murder them. And what he's done is he has gotten authority. He's gotten some papers that give him authority from Jerusalem. He's going to go to the temples, the synagogues rather, uh, there in Damascus. He's going to round up Christians and then he's going to take them bound uh, back to Jerusalem. So this is a, uh, a trip to uh, enforce persecution against believers in Jesus. That's what he's doing. And he has this radical, life-altering experience. It will alter his eternity. It will alter his whole life. It will actually alter the history of the Christian church. Uh, but he is, has this radical experience where he sees Jesus. Jesus appears to him, and there's a blinding light. He falls to the ground, and he cannot see because he's been overwhelmed by the glory of the risen Savior, Jesus, and Jesus speaks to him personally. Verse 4, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, verse 5, you know, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So twice, Jesus says, you are persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And there's a real powerful theological point, and there's a real powerful relational point emotional point here as well. The theological point is this, that Jesus is one with his church. Caleb just gave us an illustration about the, 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 that we are members of his body. The Bible says that he is the head and we are members of his body. So we are connected. Once you believe in Jesus, you are connected to him in this supernatural, mysterious, probably beyond our comprehension level. Um, you're connected to Jesus. And uh, he, you are, he is the head, you are the body. So there is this sense in which he uses us as his people to perform uh, his will on planet earth. But there's also this relational picture here that is really affects our hearts. And that's this, that Jesus identifies with us. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He's so connected to his suffering church that he says, to harm my people is to persecute me personally. That's how Jesus identifies with us. We are certainly his servants. He is the king and we are his subjects. Um, you know, he is, uh, there's many ways to relate to him. But here, we are one. We are his people. And he stands with us in our suffering. And this could be a really helpful thing to remember. That when someone speaks against the church, when someone mocks 
our faith. Or when someone actually persecutes Christians or the church, that they are acting against the resurrected Lord. That can be helpful to think about when someone mocks your faith. It's helpful to take a step back sometimes and say, you know what, it, I'm not really the source of the mockery. They're mocking Jesus and what he's done and who he is. Uh, God have mercy upon anyone that would persecute, that would mock, that would resist the church of Jesus Christ, for they are resisting the Lord who rules over all. Uh, and so that's, that's a point he makes that's so powerful. Well, Jesus tells him, not only are you persecuting me, but he tells him to go on to Damascus, and he says, when you get there, you'll get some instructions. And Saul remains blinded, so he's led by the hand. His companions lead him by the hand. He goes into Damascus. He's blind for three days. He's fasting for three days as he waits to hear what the Lord will say uh, to him. The glory of Christ, of the resurrected Lord in this encounter has blinded him in one way, but has opened to the eyes of his heart in another way to know who Jesus is. Now, he actually sees the resurrected Lord. The, the companions with him don't. They just hear a voice. But he actually sees Jesus. Um, this isn't a mere vision. It's an appearance of the resurrected Lord. Elsewhere, Paul says that, have I not seen the Lord? Um, and it's a commissioning. He's not only being converted, but he's being commissioned because the original apostles who founded the church, who write the scripture, uh, one of their qualifications was to have seen the resurrected Lord and so, the resurrect, so that they could testify to his resurrection. So the resurrected Lord is actually a, appearing here to him and it changes everything about him. Let's look what happens next, verse, verses 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So we've been saying that grace changes everything, and grace is God at work. It's not us at work. Grace, is not, grace could be empowering our works, but grace starts with God. It represents the work of God. And in this story, God is, well, he's doing everything, isn't he, when we read about Saul's conversion. First of all, he's intercepting Saul, appearing to him, revealing himself to him. And next, he's going in, uh, in a vision, speaking to this guy named Ananias. And he tells Ananias, hey, there's a guy over uh, in uh, Damascus. He gives him the address. He gives him the street name and who he's staying with. And uh, he said, he's had a vision, this guy. He's waiting for you to come. And by the way, his name is Saul of Tarsus, to which Ananias says, whoa, 
whoa, wait a minute, that guy has been doing great damage. This guy, we've heard all about him, and he's here to arrest people. Ananias says that. He knows that he's here to arrest people. So, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not really interested uh, in going and seeing this guy. But the Lord says to him, verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument. God has chosen Saul. He's prepared Saul. He said, he's going to carry my name, verse 15, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Saul will do all of that in the book of Acts. We'll read about all those things that God does in him and through him. And so Ananias obeys. He he goes and sees Saul in verse 17. It says, he departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he says, brother Saul, This is powerful because um, it's recognizing that grace changes everything, not only between us and God, but between us and one another. Because the man that he has feared, the murderer that he has been afraid of, he now puts his hands on him and says, you're my brother. He addresses him as brother. It's an embrace. You were the persecutor, but now you're in the family. You, You hated us. And and perhaps we hated you, but now there is love. There there is this welcome of you. You are my brother, this intimate, affectionate term, brother Saul. What grace, the one who is breathing out murderous threats, the first words he hears from a Christian, at least recorded in Acts, the first words he hears from a Christian are, you're my brother. So it's a beautiful picture of how vertical grace brings horizontal grace. How when we're reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another as well. Grace changes everything. So he prays for him. He regains his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And now the one who has been this hate-filled persecutor encounters the living God again through the power of the Holy Spirit. He uh, believes, it doesn't use the term here, but obviously he does come to faith because it says he rises and then verse 18, he's baptized. So we've seen, we'll see this a lot in Acts. People hear the gospel, they experience the power of God, they believe in the risen Jesus, and then they are baptized as a way to demonstrate their union with Christ, what Christ has done for them and that they're identifying with him. And the whole thing is God's work alone. You don't see Saul creating this. It's not Saul's doing this, that, or the other. It's God acting upon Saul by grace. God orchestrating and ordaining somebody to come pray for him in a vision. Tell Saul with the vision, this guy's coming. Prays for him. He's, he's uh, filled with the Spirit, and he simply follows the Lord in baptism. Uh, just a wonderful, power, or a powerful account of a conversion. And here's the sort of the take-home point. Here's kind of the, the idea is that Saul's story is a paradigm for all Christians. In a very real way, Saul's story, if you're a Christian, is your story. Now, your circumstances may differ. I get it. You haven't killed people. You haven't killed Christians. You haven't persecuted them. You're not arresting believers and trying to take them off to prison. I, I understand you're not doing that. However, every one of us was on a road Uh, moving away from Jesus. He was moving to persecute Christ's people, but all of us are born with a heart that opposes the Lord, with a heart of sin. And we may not all do the same external sins. I get that there's different levels of external sin and how they affect others. So murdering a person is more harmful than being angry with a person. I understand that in terms of them. But sin, there is a sense in which sin really is sin. That what happened to Saul happened 
to us, that it's not just that Saul needed more help than us. The gospel is not Jesus coming to help us so that we can help ourselves. The gospel is, coming, is Jesus coming to us and raising us from the dead. And there are not degrees of death. I mean, this isn't like Miracle Max and the Princess Bride that you are mostly dead. This isn't like you were mostly dead and, and Saul was completely dead. But, but so Saul needed resurrection. You just needed, you know, just a restart a little bit. That, that is not dead is dead. It's not like Saul was blind and you had astigmatism with some vision problems. No, you were blind as well. And I understand our external sins can differ, but your heart before the Lord was dead. You were blind. You were not seeking him. The Bible says he made, we were enemies. He made us friends. Saul was his enemy. But the Bible says you were too. And if you're not a believer, you are posturing yourself even now as an enemy of the loving God of the universe. And he intervenes and gives us new life just as he did Saul. So when we read this story, there's a way in which, and I've, I've kind of shared it that way, there's a way in which we step back and go, this is amazing. Can you believe this guy got saved? But we must read ourselves into the text and say, isn't it amazing that I'm saved? Because the same grace of God was extended to me. And growing in Jesus is really embracing this, knowing more and more about God's grace and celebrating it and living in the power and in the good of it. So when you read the story, don't think Saul, much bigger sinner and then much better Christian. Think dead man brought to life and put yourself in the same place because that's exactly where you are. Well, let's look what happens. After he is now saved and baptized, uh, he starts his, his ministry and, uh, beginning in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the tr Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. God's grace radically reverses the course of our lives. And we see that in Saul's life here. After his conversion, he begins to preach the same gospel that he was persecuting the believers for preaching. He was saying, stop that, and now he's saying, Jesus is Lord. Such an amazing transformation. 
Uh, this, this section gives us the earliest stages of Paul's ministry. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may have heard about the Apostle Paul. This is, uh, this is the Apostle Paul. His name is changed to Paul. At this stage, it is Saul. And what happens is he begins to preach the gospel to Gentiles, the news of Jesus. He begins to start churches and then as he travels, he writes letters to those churches, and that's what a bulk of our New Testament is, the letters that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write to those churches in the various cities of the Roman Empire. And what we see here is the pattern of his early ministry, and it remains the pattern for life. So in both Damascus, which we read about first, and then Jerusalem, he preaches the, bold, the gospel boldly, the Holy Spirit works, he becomes the target of an assassination, and he escapes from the city. That becomes Paul's life for the rest of his life. Uh, so he is, uh, you know, he is resisted for the gospel for the rest of his life. Uh, first of all, what happens here is that he's in Damascus. Presumably, Ananias introduces him to the other Christians there in Damascus. Uh, he immediately proclaims Jesus is the son of God, verse 21, everyone who hears him was amazed. They were amazed saying, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? So everybody's saying, what? This is amazing. This guy was wreaking havoc. This guy made havoc. I had to look up that word. I didn't know what that word meant. It means, I mean, I've used it, but I didn't know what it meant. I mean, knowing the definition of word, that's irrelevant to my use of that term. Uh, so he says, havoc is great destruction or devastation. Havoc, great destruction or devastation. Use it in a sentence. The cowboys never wreak havoc on anyone in January. So there's, it's used in a sentence. So he, 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 although I hope this year it changes. So he, uh, he persecutes the believers in Jerusalem with great destruction and devastation. He, that's what he brings, destruction and devastation. And they say, isn't he here to do the exact same thing here? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound to the chief priest? Verse 21. So they don't believe it. They are amazed by this. And the reason they're amazed is because grace is shocking. It is amazing. They're right. They should be amazed. It is shocking that the guy who came here to arrest people is now preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and making himself subject to persecution. That is shocking. And they will ultimately get used to him, and they'll get used to him in Jerusalem, and they'll follow him as he follows the Lord. But but Saul, who becomes Paul, never gets used to the amazing grace of God. He never moves beyond this. He never loses his amazement. The reason I say that, not that he didn't have his moment, but his lifestyle was to live amazed by grace. And the reason I say that is because there's just multiple references, autobiographical references in his letters where he tells us what he's thinking. And, and we see how grace dominates his thinking. So for instance, consider 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This isn't false humility. Paul is saying, what am I doing here declaring the good news of Jesus, starting churches, helping people? I have no business doing this. I was seeking to kill its leaders. I have no business here but for the grace of God. 
Do you see, he lived with that awareness. He didn't forget where he came from. He didn't move up and then forget about his growing up, his spiritual growing up. He remembers and lives with it because it reminds him of the grace of God. A statement like that isn't uh, morbid introspection. It's not celebrating my sin. It's celebrating the grace of God by having a realistic view of how heinous my sin really was so it points me to Christ and say how glorious his grace really is. Look at another passage, 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 to 14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. You could be be stoned for that under the old covenant. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, he says, I was blaspheming Jesus. I was persecuting his people. I was an opponent, an angry, insolent, violent opponent of the people of God, but God had mercy on me. It's not just that he's running down his sin resume uh, to just sort of, you know, feel bad about himself. He's running down his sin resume in this passage because it highlights, it shines a light on the mercy of God, that God's mercy would touch one like this and reverse the course of his life and make the persecutor a proclaimer of the good news, make the enemy a friend of the people of God. This is what we must see here. Is that faith and love came to me that are in Christ Jesus. So the, God's initial grace to Saul is breathtaking. And from, I just gave you two, but from the numerous places in his letters where he refers to it, we get the impression that Paul just didn't grow familiar with what God had done for him. Rather, the grace of God steered his life, directed his life, shaped his thinking, and informed how he related to those who loved Jesus and those who were his enemies, both shaped by grace. Never got used to it. You know, let me ask you, I've been asking myself as I've read Saul's story this week and meditated upon it, is there a sense in which you've grown familiar with the grace of God? Was there a time in your life where grace really was amazing to you? But now perhaps it's something far more familiar. There was a time at which it struck a chord deep in your soul. You thought about, God has accepted me. God has welcomed me. God has embraced me. God has made me his son or daughter in Christ. Jesus has sacrificed for me the innocent lamb, for me the guilty one. And at times, when you heard those truths, they sang in your heart. But today you say, man, I'm just familiar with those. Even singing the songs of Christmas that Jesus has come. God has come to us. There was a time when the first Christmas you were a believer, those songs were like fresh. They came into living color for you. And now it's like, yeah, that's just the old Christmas songs and just a little rote, a little overly familiar. Listen, we want to, we want to follow what he has, Paul has done in his letters, and we want to be amazed by what Christ has done. This story is about what Christ has done, and we want to be aware of the saving power of Jesus in our own lives. Maturity in Christ is not about learning new techniques. It's not about new spiritual hacks. It's not even about ultimately gaining new knowledge. Sometimes we think, as long as I'm learning more biblical truths, then I am maturing. 
And James actually says you can learn more truth of Scripture and you can grow in deception. The Bible doesn't deceive, but you deceive yourself. It says be a hearer and a doer of the word because if you are a hearer only, you deceive yourself. If you only hear the word without applying it, you deceive yourself. You assume you are growing in maturity, but you are not. You are just growing in awareness of facts. And so we want to ensure that we are applying what we learn. And most of all, we want to be returning to the gospel, to the grace of God. Because maturing is not becoming familiar with the gospel so that we can leave the gospel behind. Maturing is embracing the gospel so that it informs every aspect of our life. Maturity is growing in amazement at what God has done for us. I I believe that we only have the slightest glimpse of what God's done for us. We know enough to be saved. But when we see Jesus face to face in the new heavens and new earth, I believe we're going to be blown away. It's going to be almost like I had no idea. It was this amazing. It was this glorious. When you mature, maturity represents knowing what the Father has done for you. That's true, humanly speaking. You know, when you mature, when you're a little kid, you don't think much about your parents, you know, you don't think about what they're doing. It's rare the kid that is aware of the sacrifices mom and dad are making for them. You really don't realize it until you grow up, and often you don't even realize it when you grow up. You realize it when you have a kid of your own, and you're not sleeping at night, and you're going, oh, my parents went through all of this. My parents went through all of this, and if you gave your parents grief, especially as a teenager, you have no idea what that is, and until you have a teenager that does the same. And you're like, oh, what was I? My parents loved me. I can't believe their love for me. And the same is true with the Lord. As the more we mature, we come into a greater perspective of the Father sending the Son at such sacrifice, of the Son giving his life, bearing our sins on the cross so that we could go free. The Son being resurrected, raised to the right hand of the Father and ruling over everything. The Holy Spirit coming and awakening our dead heart, opening our plugged ears, opening our blind eyes so that we could hear and see and know and believe in Jesus. And we look and say, what the Father, what the Son, what the Spirit did for us is amazing. And the more we mature, the more we're amazed by that. It's not that we put it in the rearview mirror and say, oh, I have a testimony 20 years ago. No, we got a testimony today of the grace of God. (laughs) Today, not just 20 years ago. And may what he did 20 years ago, some of you have been saved 50 years in this church, what he did 50 years ago, may it be as fresh today, more real. A godly marriage is somebody that's been married 25 years, and they look into one another's eyes and say, we've been through a lot, but we love each other more than we did at first. And it's when we love Jesus for what he's done for us more than we did at first that we're growing in grace. May God grow us and mature us. May we never forget Well, the people see that Paul is real. I I got off track a little bit here, but they see that he's real. Um, He he preaches, his arguments confound the Jews. Uh, He's proving the scripture to them, it says in verse 22. He's proving that Jesus was the Lord. And what do they do? Well, what what they always do in the book of Acts, if you can't win by a persuasive argument, just kill the guy. So we'll just kill this guy. We'll just kill him. He finds out they're going to kill him, his disciples. And it's like this movie scene. You know, they lower him in a basket outside the city wall and he runs free. So he escapes with his life um, and 
That's going to be the rest of the story. And we're going to read over and over. Paul getting persecuted, Paul escaping with his life. So welcome to the book of Acts. Uh, welcome to Paul's life. Then he goes to Jerusalem. We don't know how many years pass before verse 26. But he comes to Jerusalem. It says, verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. They, they said they, they did not believe that he was a disciple. What does this mean? They're thinking Trojan horse. He's coming in here. He's going to act all Jesus-like, say all a bunch of stuff, and say, hey, can I meet the whole church? Let's get everybody here. And then when everybody's there, he'll bring in his whole gang, and uh, they'll arrest everybody and persecute him. So they don't trust him. They think it's fake. They think he's a spy, or he's, he's doing something that will ultimately harm them. But then this guy shows up and makes a way for him. Barnabas, verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This guy Barnabas, uh, he's back in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Back in chapter 4, here's what we learn about Barnabas. That's not even his name. Chapter 4 says his name was Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas. The name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. So like your name is Joseph, but you are so encouraging to other people. We're just going to start calling you the encouragement guy. That's your name now. And so they just, that's how they refer to this guy, Joseph. You know, which Joseph are you talking about? The encouragement guy? Yeah, that guy, Barnabas. That's what they call it. His nickname became his name so that here, that's what they're referring to him as, son of encouragement. This is what he's known for. His very nature is about coming alongside people, building them up, giving them hope, strengthening them, uh, building a bridge. That's what he does here. He takes a risk. He, he, he goes and takes a risk to reach out to Paul, Saul at this point still, get to get to know him and to help him. And this can be so powerful for a newer believer, what he does here. There's something very gracious going on here. I read a story about someone who had a Barnabas come into their life when they were a new believer. Very similar to Paul's experience. It's the story of uh, Chuck Colson. You may know Chuck Colson. He, uh, he was a political, uh, career political leader. He worked in Nixon's I worked for President Nixon. He was involved in the Watergate scandal. Not only was Charles Colson involved in the scandal, but uh, he had the reputation for being like the toughest guy, the, the, uh, the nastiest guy, the guy who was most loyal to the president and did his dirty work. As a matter of fact, Colson was known as Nixon's hatchet man. So if you're the hatchet man, you're a tough guy, okay? You are, you're, you're, taking, you're taking names, you're taking care of business, and uh, I got it, President. Uh, I'll just take care of it, whatever that looks like. So he ultimately goes to prison for his participation uh, in the Watergate scandal, and he becomes a Christian. He's actually the founder of a ministry that you may have heard of called Prison Fellowship. So Charles Colson, who was a really bad guy um, and did some bad things, he, uh, he becomes a believer, and he he says that it was challenging at first because people didn't believe he was a believer, especially his enemies on the other side. And so he, he shares this story, because I mean, that's a great, if you get arrested for something, saying I'm a Christian now, even if you aren't, that could be a helpful thing, right? So they don't trust him. So uh, this is what I read about him. He says, after the news broke that Chuck Colson had accepted Christ, he was met with much cynicism and disbelief. 
He knew that many people, especially his political enemies, would not believe that his decision was true. However, he met a strong supporter in a most unlikely man, a man named Harold Hughes. Hughes was a senator, a U.S. senator from Iowa, who served in the Senate at the time of the the Watergate scandal. According to Colson, Hughes was put on, Hughes was put high on Nixon's enemy list. So for the hatchet man, this guy is high on the enemy list because of his liberal causes and position against the Vietnam War. So they were on opposite sides politically on some some policy things. And they were uh, on opposite sides politically speaking. But when Chuck Colson shared his testimony with him, Hughes encouraged him. This is what Hughes said. That's all I need to know, Chuck. You've accepted Jesus, and he's forgiven you. I do the same. I love you now as my brother in Christ. I will stand with you. I will defend you anywhere. I'll trust you with anything I have. Colson reflected and said, I, this is Colson, I was overwhelmed. I was so astonished, in fact, that I could only utter a feeble thank you. In all my life, no one had ever been so warm and loving to me outside of my family. And now it was coming from a man who had loathed me for years. They had a mutual opposition, but now he has reached out to him and said, I will defend you before anyone as a brother in Christ. Look at how Barnabas serves in that way. Verse 27, Barnabas, look at the verbs, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord uh, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas takes him. They don't believe in him. He did not get a warm welcome, I think, is what we should read in the text. When he showed up, he wasn't invited to go to the Connect Center, and there'll be someone there to meet you, and then you can come to the starting point class and go to the welcome home lunch. No, we don't trust the guy. We don't want anything to do with him. So Barnabas takes him, and he brings him to them, and he says, here's what I know about him. I'll vouch for this guy. Uh, The Lord appeared to him on the road. He said, he's been preaching the gospel in Damascus, and the one who is our enemy is now our friend. He's one of us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He vouched for him, and they welcomed Paul. It says he went in and out of Jerusalem among the church members. They welcomed him because Barnabas leveraged uh, his trust with the people by saying, I'll stand for Saul. And then Saul starts reasoning with the Hellenist. He starts preaching, verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, and they were seeking to kill him. This is so powerful because in chapter 7, the Hellenists are the ones that are opposing Stephen. Stephen preaches the gospel to them, and Saul oversees Stephen's execution. So the very people Stephen is preaching the gospel to, and they execute him, now Paul is preaching the gospel. He replaces the man whose execution he oversees. Saul. That's the grace of God. He replaces him preaching the gospel, and now they want to kill 
Saul, so he has to leave and get on a boat, you know, and go to Tarsus. Same thing. But this is how grace works. It upends what we're familiar with. It changes the course of our lives. The Lord spares him, and he goes on and does other ministry, but it's just beyond irony. It's not irony that he would be reaching the people that Stephen was. It's grace. It's grace that that's how the Lord works. Let me make a couple points of how I think we can apply this to our lives, uh, and we will be done. First of all, I know they're not the main point of this chapter. The whole point of the chapter is that God saves and God does the saving. But God uses humans in this chapter. And he uses two guys that are bridge builders. And I think there's something for us here to seek to build bridges where God opens doors for us. Ananias and Barnabas were both willing to take a risk and minister to the scary guy at church. They're willing to go to the outside guy, the guy who's on the outside. They're willing to, in Ananias' case, obey the Lord and go minister to him. And then to uh, presumably introduce him in Damascus. But he was, he was the connection point. And in Jerusalem, it's not presumed, it's very clear. Barnabas is the connection point that takes him and brings him and declares to them who he is. And there's just such a power to that, to helping someone on the outside come into the community. And there may be people in our own church that are brand new Christians or newer Christians or just been on the outskirts. And God calls us to reach, to take hold of them and to bring them in and to introduce them around, to know their story enough that you could vouch for them. Get to know a new person, know their story enough that you would be able to tell their story to someone else. They knew him personally, and, and this is what God calls us to. We can't overemphasize the value. Again, Colson said, I had never experienced love like this. Someone on the opposite side saying, we're, we're in Christ together. I will stand for you no matter what. And to provide that for a newer believer is a gift, whenever the Lord would allow us to do, do that. So I don't know who it would be in your world that God would be stretching you to build a bridge store. Guarantee it was a stretch for both of them. Ananias told the Lord it was a stretch. So when you're telling Jesus, I don't know about that, that's just, you're being stretched. <laughs> say, Man, isn't this the guy arresting people? So how would God maybe call you to broaden your own heart to, to incorporate someone who's coming to Christ or is in Christ as a believer to help them as they are growing in repentance and following Christ? But I think the main point of the passage is the power of Jesus to convert. And I think the claim this passage makes upon our lives is that we're to trust God for powerful conversions. Every conversion is powerful. We're to trust God for people that we know to come to Christ. Every one of us has people in our lives that don't know Jesus. They're your neighbor, your boss, your coworker, your client, your friend from school. They're your family member, your parent, your sibling your child, your cousin, your grandparent perhaps. And, and this passage, when we read it, what God wants us to see is that no one or nothing can stop the grace of God when God saves a person. That, that when God takes the chief persecutor of the church and makes him the chief apostle to the Gentiles, we should be asking, is there anyone that God can't save? This is least likely 
least likely to be saved in the New Testament, and he's writing a chunk of the New Testament. That's because God is merciful. That's because God is gracious. That's because Jesus delights to save hard cases. And I've tried to make the point already, we're all hard cases. But from the outside, this guy looked harder, okay? Nobody, nobody, uh, when I became a Christian, it wasn't like everybody was going, whoa, him? That wasn't my case, but it was with him. Yeah, it was with him. I got saved at age 10, and so it, it, was, it was news to my mom and news to me and my Sunday school teacher and the Lord, but it wasn't news to everybody else like this was for sure. I love this quote from a commentary on the book of Acts, Dean Pinter. This is what he says. First, this passage should remind us that God can transform anyone. Who are the people in your life or in the world who you think are beyond God's reach? Is it an estranged family member? Some of us are coming into Christmas and there's an estranged family member and you can't imagine them praising Jesus. You can't even imagine it. This passage speaks to you about that. Is it an estranged family member? Is it a surly neighbor? Is it a distant enemy? Is it a rival at work? A radicalized Muslim? When we read Acts 9, we should be struck blind, if necessary, by the fact that this is a story about what God can do with the person we think is beyond God's reach and grace. Whoever is popping into your head that you think is beyond the reach of God's grace, that's the person he wants you praying for. That's the person he doesn't want you to give up on. And I, I know none of us would say that person that I'm thinking of, God couldn't save them. None of us would think that. We just act that out because we stopped praying for them a long time ago. We would never consider sharing with them the gospel again because it went so bad when we did it a long time ago. Saul is sharing the gospel with the Hellenists. And... Uh, Stephen shared the gospel with the Hellenist and got killed. It didn't go so well. That's about as bad as it can get sharing the gospel. And Saul comes back and shares the gospel with the same people. There was this sense of the power of the gospel which overwhelmed. Uh, at times you look at Paul and go, man, that overwhelmed, did that overwhelm his good sense? He just did something radical right there because he's motivated by the grace of the gospel. So who is the person in your life that seems too far away from God, too far away from you, beyond God's reach, too hard in their sin, they were no deader than you. Dead is dead. They were no blind, they're no blinder than you. And the proof that God can save anyone should be, I'm here in church today loving Jesus. That's proof that God can save anyone. And secondly, we look at the text and go, God took the chief persecutor and made him the chief apostle. God can save anyone. This story is about the mercy of Christ. And the way we respond to the text is we first of all, thank God for his grace for us and seek to live in the good of that grace and share that grace with others. And secondly, we trust him for radical conversions among the people he has put in our lives. The people that are moral and the people that are very immoral, they all need Jesus. You can distance yourself from Jesus by legalism or by, you know, blatant scandalous sin, but however it is, whether it looks clean or dirty, if you do not know Jesus, you are separating yourself from him as your enemy and you need the gospel. And so let's pray for that. Let's, uh, let's pray as we wrap up here. And I'm going to pray specifically that God will help us in this area. God, there are people throughout the room today and we have grown familiar with the grace of God. Lord, would you please 
shine in our minds the truth of how we far separate from you we were, how dead we were, what we deserved, how blind we were. Help us to remember. Lord, maybe we got saved at a young age, but still we were just as dead. Help us to remember that. And Lord, we pray that we would treasure your grace, that it would animate our lives, that it would stir our affections, that it would motivate us to follow you, that we wouldn't be following you simply because we have some kind of legalistic rules-oriented deal to earn, our, earn your favor, but we are motivated by grace, serving because we're deeply grateful for what you've done for us, and, and we're just uh, changed by your mercy and grace. And we pray, Lord, that we would share that grace with others. For those whom we've given up on, Lord, revive our faith in your saving power. We don't revive our faith in them to get saved. We revive our faith in you to save. So we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would call us afresh, even this Christmas season, to prayer. Pray that you would call us afresh to loving and serving and to having the courage to have a gospel conversation once again. And, And may it be different. Lord, we pray the testimony would be that in the family at Grace Church, we have seen radical conversion after radical conversion after radical conversion among our family, our friends, our coworkers, and our neighbors. We pray that we would live in the good of this, your grace to us. And Lord, where we lack faith, give us faith to believe you are the Savior that you clearly are. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.